Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Welcome to episode 55 of Running Matters. My name's Matt North. I'm joined by my co-host today, Paul Hadfield. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm fantastic. I'm loving the uh, the new studio. It's very mm. spacious, comfortable. Well, it's a seven-seater. Yeah. <laughs> of course it's spacious. <laughs> the old Mitsubishi wagon. Yeah, yeah. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah, We're mate. Kicked out of home? Are you sleeping in this thing? Or? I am, yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be invited over then. Yeah, but you know, you can't beat the seats. They're pretty comfy. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're chatting to um, Andy Blow today, and uh, we're doing it from the comfort of the car. Because, I mean, you, you can't beat the sound quality, can you, when you're, no, when no, you're inside a, a car? That's amazing. And yeah. the amount of drink holders is yeah. outstanding. We're, we're using them. We're putting them to good use. S- Sydney breweries are sitting everywhere. Yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> well, you've got you to warm up, don't you? Lucky the car's parked in the garage. <laughs> uh, and so what, why are we sitting in the car instead of in the, the regular studio? So Andy's based in the UK, so we're Skyping him. So I just thought... Be nice to do it on the hands-free in the car, yeah, and uh, just chat away, you know, surround sound. I'm excited by the uh, the new horizon Skype. Running matters is uh, going global. We are, we're expanding. This is our first international call, right? It is. It's going to open up some uh, some big things. Kipchoge can't be far away. No, well, as soon as they hear that base camp is base camp, yeah. it's open. Well, if, if there's one thing Kim Chogi needs, it's more altitude training. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> He'll hear about it, though. Did you hear the uh, the World 5K record went down last night? I heard. It was on the road, too. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? 12 minutes, 51 seconds that's for inc- five kilometres. Yeah. That's incredible. Doesn't even seem real. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Mm. Anyway, well played, Uganda. I can't remember his name. No, Nike. Johnny Uganda. I'm guessing Nike sponsored runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the next percentage, they've got 12 carbon plates now. <laughs> Have you heard that? <laughs> They're stacking them. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Hey, uh, we should thank our partners uh, Renault, Sydney Brewery, Goo Energy, Guy Me Alloyed Health, Fractal Running Camp. Did I? Caps. Caps. I almost got it wrong. You did. You were so close. I'm getting sloppy. (laughs) I might be still hungover from Saturday night. It's possible. We'll talk about it in a sec. Yeah. And, uh, yes, so uh, Base Camp Altitude's open. Yeah, mate. First day today. Yep. So, got some athletes through the door. It's going great guns. Awesome. Where do do people, if they want to book, where do they go to? So, they go to basecampaltitude.com.au and you can book... Book online, book your initial test online, and then we've got a little app for your uh, regular booking. It's all really easy. And we're, we're happy to put out a little discount to all our Running Matters fans, actually. So anyone who mentions Running Matters podcast at their initial consult will get a 20% discount. 20%? Yeah, for their, their initial. And then we'll talk about it after that. Nice. Yeah. Should thank uh, Jimmy Carroll behind the scenes. I was um, wasting some of Jimmy's time today, so I appreciate it, Jimmy. He's down in Canberra now. Well, he's living down in Canberra. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he wants to get into politics. He does not. No, he doesn't. But he has moved to Canberra. Well, sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, don't knock it till you tried it. That's what they say. So, have you thanked all the sponsors? I think so. Should we put the apologies forward now? Apologies for... Well, I think we need to apologise to the Carrington Hotel. <laughs> the the mate of D was not pleased with it. No. Did, did we get asked to leave before we got in? We got a photo in. We got asked to leave twice. Oh. Yeah. We didn't get served. No, no, we got served. But then, yeah, only the once. I don't remember getting served. Yeah, yeah. We, we had a beer. Not a Sydney brewery beer, though. No. It's rubbish. That's why we left. Yeah, I was angry. Leave on our terms. That's right. Anyway, we'll be back, Carrington. Never fear. <laughs> In four weeks. In four weeks of six-foot track. Do you think the six-foot track's going to be on after our run up there on the weekend? I think I'm the only one that does think it'll be on. You're pro. I'm pro. So, for anyone interested... We got about 10Ks into the six-foot track course and then a bridge was broken and there was stuff washed away. Yeah, all the flooding in, in the Blue Mountains. I, I've got a bad feeling about this, Wolf. Yeah? Yeah. Well, we'll know in four weeks. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can devote the next four weeks to hard training if I don't know that it's going to be on. What it, what it, if Hammer gets a whiff of this, there's no chance he's coming. <laughs> he dodged the hills again on Sunday. Yeah. He's getting in early. Mm. Or getting out early, I should say. Getting out early. Canberra Marathon 2020. <laughs> He's all over it. <laughs> anyway. All right. Should, should, we get... we, should we start chatting to Andy? Yeah. Let's get him on. All right. And, and we should say to our, our listeners, there may be, being a Skype, it may, you may have a little bit of breakup every now and then, but be patient because I, I think it'd be very little. Yeah. I think it'll be okay. Yeah. I think it'll be fine. Yeah. Good. Yep. Actually, I thought of two more things I wanted to mention. The Running Matters singlets and shirts are ASICs and they're lightweight and you can get them now in store at Ranoa for 25 bucks. So I recommend going down there to get some running and training kit. And the other thing is we've got a box of goo energy gels to give away. So what we want you to do is answer a question and the question is check out goo energy oz website and tell us how many flavors goo has and you can post your answer on insta or our facebook page thanks guys okay andy andy thanks very much for giving up your time tell us a bit about yourself as an athlete uh i started out probably doing serious sport when I was, I played, I played football a little bit, you know, as a lot of kids do, until I was a teenager. But uh, um, got into cross country running after that, and I'd always done a bit of that alongside playing football, and um, ended up finding I was probably better at running than football. Um, stuck with that for a while. My dad encouraged me quite a lot because he did a little bit of running, so I used to go running around the block. We had a, we did like a five k loop around the block where I used to pretend my shoelaces had come undone halfway around to get a rest <laughs> and they used to take me for a loop around so I was into that and then I also did a bit of swimming and you know the, the sort of short version of the story is it led me into triathlon and I did, did triathlon pretty seriously for a number of years and I, I raced sort of semi-pro did did some Xterra did some Ironman stuff and um, yeah ended up um, sort of really enjoying a good few years of, of having a proper smash at that I worked alongside it some of the time and some of the time I raced and trained full time but I did that until I was sort of in my 
in my mid-20s and then started to work a bit more seriously. Nice one. So the big question is, are you a big sweater? I am. Yeah, very big. <laughs> that was that was my problem. I, I think if I'd have been born in Australia, I wouldn't have survived with the heat and humidity. Because I, I, I found out the hard way by doing triathlons. And obviously, in you know triathlons in UK, most of Europe, usually you know reasonably temperate conditions. And then, of course, a lot of the big races, especially if you do Ironman, you go out to Kona, a lot of the, the, these, the big races are in hot and often humid places. And I, I learned the hard way that I just found it really, really hard. I would, I would fall apart in these long, hot races. And it was a lot, I thought it was to do with dehydration, actually, at the time, because I sweat so much. But, but I sort of learned that it was actually more to do with um, messing up my electrolyte balance because I sweat a lot and I lose a lot of salt and I was drinking a lot but I was I was really sort of diluting my body and getting a condition called hypernatremia um, which is pretty nasty and that that was a big all of that experience was a big catalyst of what led to you know setting up precision hydration eventually hmm. so so Andy can you explain to the listeners what hypernatremia actually is and how commonly does this occur yeah hypernatremia is um uh, it's it, it's a medical term that describes when you've got low blood sodium levels. So in you, in your body, lots of things are controlled by homeostasis, and lots of things in homeostasis are. It's all about balance. They they exist between tight parameters. So an example would be like your core body temperature sits around thirty seven degrees Celsius, and it doesn't fluctuate very much up and down before you get into trouble. And your blood sodium level is another aspect of your physiology that's very tightly regulated and that sits around 135 to 145 millimoles of sodium per litre so your mm. blood is quite salty that equates to about 3,600 milligrams of salt for every litre of sweat and what happens with hyponatremia is for, for various reasons your blood sodium levels drop and that that's most common for athletes when they drink too much water or they drink too much of any drink that's, that's dilute and it and it actually um, it it basically overwhelms your blood you you dilute it down and it can make you quite ill hmm. and the reason it makes you ill is because when you because your body tries to balance keep this delicate salt balance in the blood if you if you take too much water in first of all you obviously just pee it out but after a while if you overwhelm your ability to pee it out what happens is your body shunts fluid from the bloodstream into its cells mm. and the cells start to swell up so people with hypernatremia get quite puffy fingers quite puffy ankles sometimes they can look quite bloated and it can affect your brain and it's when it affects your brain that you're in trouble because your brain actually swells and expands because it soaks up all this water and it's got nowhere to go it gets crushed on the inside of your skull and it can lead to, well, eventually it can kill people. Mm. Um, there's not been, there's been, there's been a number of recorded deaths in, in marathons and triathlons and that kind of thing. Um, probably in the, in the teens, you know, low, low double digits in the last 10, 15 years. But I think there's a lot more cases of um, hyponatremia that don't, that aren't fatal, that obviously just make people feel pretty crap and, and ruin their performances. Mm -hmm. And one, the thing that I learned about hyponatremia as well is, although it's the most common way it happens is by drinking too much, it can be exacerbated if you're someone who has a high sweat rate and sweats a lot of salt out, because obviously it's easier to dilute yourself if you're losing a lot of salt. Mm. And that was, the, that was the kind of camp that I fell into. 
Hey, um, Tim Noakes wrote wrote a book called Waterlogged. What's what's your what's your take on the topic? Well, it's a, it's an interesting book. It's he, I would say, you know, Tim Noakes is or certainly was very well respected in in the world of running and physiology, and a lot of what he says in the book is is good is is good science good good knowledge and good advice but he takes it to quite an extreme which is often what noakes tends to do and he goes from this because his view in waterlogged is that the sports drink industry has kind of overplayed the the message around dehydration being a problem for athletes in order to sell more drinks and he points the fingers really strongly at gatorade in the book for that and you can't to an extent you can't argue with that in that a lot of the messaging in the last 20 years around sports drinks has been that you you need to drink a lot to avoid dehydration and there's been no counterbalancing argument to stop people over drinking and getting hyponatremia but where Noakes takes it a bit far in waterlogged is that he fails to acknowledge that actually when you're doing stuff when you're sweating a lot and losing a lot of salt that actually a balanced approach of supplementing some salt in relation to what you lose and fluid can, can be better than than just drinking water which is what he suggests is all you need to do and it's a very so he's he's taken this kind of alternate extreme stance from from say Gatorade and these other companies who are saying just drink ahead of your thirst just drink so that you you minimize your body weight loss and your performance will be better he's saying no that that can lead to hyponatremia only drink water when you're thirsty and your body will balance itself out which I think is true for short events people who don't sweat a lot can sometimes get away with that approach but I've come across as well as myself I've come across a lot of athletes who are doing longer hotter endurance events for whom just drinking water is actually bad advice they need to they need to take some salts on board as well in order to keep that blood sodium level up and keep everything in balance mm. so I think yeah Noakes' notes his stance on it is is quite extreme and quite controversial it kind of moved the needle in the right direction in one sense and it got people talking away from just dehydration being the problem to understanding hyponatremia but uh, like he's done with this kind of low carb high fat thing he kind of goes way off the other other side mm. and and I think that's that's a little bit unhelpful because uh, some people we, I've, I've definitely seen people make mistakes especially in the heat by following his advice and ending up you know ending up dehydrated because they've just been sipping on water and not actually thinking about their salt balance as well so what about in terms of uh putting the the salt balance stuff aside noak sort of suggests that you only need to drink to thirst like that's his big tagline is that your system's highly developed and you know when you're thirsty and the previous sort of Gatorade advice was you need to replace 100% of your fluids all the time. So they're obviously, like you say, two extremes of that spectrum. So, so where does it sit? Where does the science sit there between those two extremes? I think when, where Noakes' advice is good is whenever you're doing a relatively short event or training session or your, your sweat rate is low, so in cold conditions, you know, you can get away with drinking to thirst because your sweat losses are, are so low that topping up a little bit, everyone, so everyone can cope with a level of dehydration. If you start an event pretty well hydrated, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it might vary from person to person, but kind of losing two, three, four, even 5% of your body weight might be okay for performance and it's probably natural and, and good so you definitely don't need to replace 100% of what you're losing and if you give people who are exercising for a short period of time 
access to water and just tell them to drink to thirst, often that's what you observe. They they lose two, three, four percent of their body weight, mm. but they maintain their performance. When it gets longer, though, the problem that you hit is that thirst is driven by the salt levels in your blood. So what what happens is you because your sweat is of a lower concentration in your blood you lose more water than salt so generally the salt content sort of starts to rise the relative salt content in your blood is going up concentration is and you if you keep just drinking water gradually that that will get diluted back down and you end up in a situation where your blood sodium levels might be fairly normal but your blood volume is decreased Hmm. and obviously as an athlete exercising it's that plasma volume contraction that, that affects your performance. Whereas if you add some a significant amount of salt in with some of your drinks or alongside your drinks, you're able to absorb more fluid into the bloodstream and hold it there and maintain that salt level, which keeps you a little bit thirsty and keeps you keeps your physiology more normalised. Uh, and and for if you're doing something for multiple hours in the heat or back-to-back days of very hard training in the heat, that can be really useful to to keep your performance up. So. I think Noakes' advice plays true for a lot of athletes a lot of the time. What I don't like is the is the message, especially for people saying doing marathons, ultras, or just people with a very heavy training load or training in a very hot environment. That the kind of there is there is a lot of cases where following that advice could actually trip them up. Mm. Can I ask you um, about pre-race hydration? Is would would, yeah. would drinking um, electrolyte drinks um, be sufficient enough if you wanted to, you know, ba- basically prep for a race, or would you recommend something something stronger like you'd get from a chemist, say? Yeah, I think there's a lot of athletes that do think about drinking water and electrolyte drinks in the build-up to a race to be better hydrated. It kind of makes intuitive sense. But actually, because of this homeostasis in your body, a lot of what you drink, and if you drink a bit more than normal in the days leading up to a race, basically what happens is you'll probably just pee more and your body will balance itself out and you'll end up no, not materially better off. Mm. In fact, we see a lot of athletes end up worse off if they just drink tons of water because they end up weighing out loads and ending up a little bit hyponatremic when they start. So one, the best technique that's sort of been validated to improve your hydration before you start something is is to preload with a very strong electrolyte drink so it's like you mentioned something you buy a chemist or um, something which is kind of uh, 13 14 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter or more because what that does is that allows you your body to absorb that salt into the bloodstream pull some fluid in with it and retain it there but only for a short period of time so this preloading should happen immediately before an event not even even we, we sometimes recommend athletes do a little bit of preloading the night before but that's mainly to catch up in case they are behind for any reason on their hydration um the the, the main important preload is a small but strong electrolyte drink about an hour hour and a half before you start and that's the best way to top your system up and and to put it in context that sort of strength of drink is about three times stronger than a normal sports drink Okay. in terms of the electrolyte composition. Yeah, right. Okay, well, that's good and, to know. And how much fluid do you suggest? We've uh, got a, it, uh, we, as a, as a... It's a bit of a... A rule of thumb would be something around 500 millilitres. Yeah. But if you're a really big guy, that might be a bit more. If you're a really small athlete, it might be a bit less. It's mm-hmm. always a bit of a kind of suck it and see. See what you... You don't want to drink 
so much you feel bloated mm. but you want to top yourself up and we've, we've got a blog about that on our website which i can send you a link for for the show notes if you like it gives a bit of a an idea of a protocol for people to follow and some of the science behind it fantastic yeah, thanks andy great. yep so we're talking about uh, the role of salt as far as improving the amount of fluid absorbed during exercise uh, and that sort of speed of water uptake. What about its role in assisting carbohydrate yeah. intake? I think what I've noticed with it, with it, and certainly this was a lot based on my own experience, was if I over-consumed just plain water, especially in a long, hot event, I found that I would get, a very, I would get quite bloated in the stomach because it would slow the actual gastric emptying and slow the absorption because the body's resisting absorbing the water to dilute itself down further. Mm. Whereas if you added some salt in with that, I found I would tend to find that that would help the speed up the absorption of the of the fluids and, and also therefore the digestion and absorption of the carbohydrates. So you'd feel less sick, you know, less bloated. Yeah. And it's all about getting that. It's a fine delicate balance and everyone's balance is a bit different but there's obviously three sort of principal things you need during a long endurance event and they're water potentially salts and, and calories usually from carbohydrates and those three if you think about those three sort of levers as separate you know everyone's mixture of those three is a bit different and your mixture might be different on a cold day from a hot day yeah. but my mixture was very skewed towards being quite high on fluids and salts and pretty normal to low on carbohydrate. I know other athletes who need a lot more carbohydrate than me, but can get away with a lot less salt and water. Mm. So I think it's when the, the role of the salt in all of that is just it's one of those pillars where if you get it about right, the other everything else works very nicely because you're getting that that mixture right. Mm. And it's and you you kind of quite quite often I think what athletes do is they they stumble upon that you know inadvertently just by trying different things rather than approaching it in a systematic way of looking at those three elements and trying to tweak them what we do with a lot of the pro athletes that we work with is that we'll sit down with them pre and post all their big races and we'll analyze what they're planning to do nutrition and hydration wise and then we'll look at the performance and then we'll look at it after the race and we'll do a macronutrient and a micronutrient breakdown of, of what they actually took and kind of compare it to performance and build up a bit of a database with that person of mm. what worked and what hasn't and then by comparing that to weather conditions and um, pace that they were going out and all that and all that sort of thing you start to figure out okay what's that optimum mix for a given person in, in given conditions yeah very good sounds tremendous um, just a question on that mix I suppose uh, so is, is it true that an individual's percentage of salt loss uh, in their sweat remains fixed regardless of fluid loss or temperature those sorts of things not, I would say not fixed, but very in within a small band. So there's there's a lot of this is a point where there's a lot of contention, a lot of argument because a lot of the literature says if you, for instance, if you acclimatize to the heat, you sweat more volume but less salt. If you sweat faster, then you lose more salt than if you sweat slower, mm -hmm. and these kind of things. And I think they're all they all have an element of truth to them. But the big the big thing that changes the the amount of salt that you lose in your sweat is something genetic and it's to do with the um, CFTR function in your sweat glands which is the which is the um, ion specific reabsorption channels that that uptake chloride and sodium from your sweat before it goes out onto the body and basically you know someone like me I lose nearly two grams of, of sodium per liter of sweat 
and that's genetic because predominant the, the, there must be a reason why the CFTR channels in my sweat glands don't function brilliantly. And this has been researched from quite a lot from a cystic fibrosis patient point of view because people with CF have either non-existent CFTR channel function or very, very low-functioning CFTR channels, and they lose loads of salt in their sweat. Mm. But what's interesting is some people with CF lose only about the same amount of salt that I do or even a little bit less, and I, I lose a lot of salt, but I don't have CF. So there's a kind of a similar mechanism but with a different root cause. Mm. And so this, this genetic factor, some people are just essentially born better at reabsorbing salt than others. And all these other things like dietary sodium intake, um, acclimatization status, the rate of sweating, they move the needle on your, on your sweat sodium output, but only within a small band. Mm. So whenever I sweat test myself, I'm losing around, around about 18, 1900 milligrams of sodium per litre. And that'll be true whether I'm, you know, sweating my backside off after running up a mountain in Arizona next week in 35 degrees heat or whether I'm running on the treadmill here back at home in 15 degrees mm. it's always within a it, it, it's within a few percent the amount of repeat testing we've now done with athletes that we work with we're reasonably conf confident that it's rare to see big shifts in sweat sodium within an individual the range that you see between individuals is massive, though. So I lose in nearly 2,000 milligrams. We've measured some people losing only 200 milligrams. Yeah, wow. And they're people that are really, really often they're they're just brilliantly adapted or or um or brilliantly um sort of made up for for racing in hot conditions. That's mm. uh th that brings us to a listener question. Actually, this one's uh from a friend of the show, Troy's brother Brad. And he said, I sweat buckets, yeah. e even in winter. That's the only time he does races, by the way. I keep telling my mates that I'm more efficient than them. Is that true? If you sweat buckets, are you more efficient? Yeah. Well, if you, if you take your baseline sweat rate, the fitter you get, the more because you're able to cool faster. So sweating more is kind of a good thing for an athlete because it allows you, allows you to cool more. But I would say only up to, only up to a certain point. And there's, there's a genetic component to how much you sweat. So I think, you know, it's it's debatable whether it's whether it is more efficient or not once you get beyond a certain point. But certainly if you take two people, but if you take someone, they're untrained, you train them, they'll start to sweat more more rather than less. So it is a sign of being, being fitter and more efficient. Mm. I'm worried that if Brad sweats more, he's going to drown. Mm, in his own sweat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that'd be me. We'd get on well, me and Brad, I reckon. <laughs> you won't want to sit next to us in a spin class or or run on the next treadmill. <laughs> I've, I've got another listener question. Actually, this is from the Phantom, and so as a colourblind runner, I find it difficult to judge my hydration levels based on the colour of my urine. So, what are some other strategies I can employ? Is urine colour a useful indicator anyway? Think again. This is a, this is a good question and one we get asked a lot. So I'll also link you to a blog about this one because there's um there's an interesting piece of research done in the US on looking at urine colour and matching it to actual actual hydration status. And I think the bottom line that came out from it was that if you take urine urine colour from the first first pee you have on a morning, 
that can be a decent indicator of your basic hydration patient status. But once you get beyond that, if you're looking at your pee in the middle of the day, then it's not quite as good an indicator because you'll have, you'll have drunk things. You might have had cups of tea and coffee, which cause you to pee more, even if your body water levels are low. So it's a bit of a confounding factor. Honestly, going back to the notes thing, I think the biggest the biggest sign that you yeah or beetroot juice or yeah or your um, your vitamin tablets or whatever stuff that can that can freak it out. So I would say I would say you know going back to the notes thing, listening to your body, learning to see the early signs of signs of thirst are, is a really good. That's that's the number one way of, of telling if you're getting dehydrated. From a more from a more chronic perspective, if you are someone if you can weigh yourself most mornings first thing if you see significant day-to-day fluctuations in body weight quite often that's to do with fluid loss or fluid retention so if you're feeling thirsty and your body weight's down a kilo or two that's that's sort of a double whammy to say actually i probably am a bit behind on fluids yeah um, versus if you're feeling a bit thirsty and your body weight is normal it's maybe not quite as severe Hey, um, what's your what's your view on salt tablets? Whether that's a marathon di- for a marathon distance or an ultra marathon. Basically, I would say, you know, if if you experience a level of electrolyte loss where you need them, they're as good a method as any for putting it back in. But a lot of people don't like the concentrated dose or. or it's um it's not necessary you know they the whole notes aren't water or whatever in my experience you know when i was doing ironmans or ultras i would take three or four salt tablets an hour and without them my performance would would crumple you know, i'll just fall off a cliff so i think they are basically a great and easy to carry delivery memory method for extra salts if you need them but obviously, what you need to figure out first of all is, do you need to take them or not? Because if you don't, they probably may. What about the idea that um, you can get all your electrolyte sort of needs from your fluids rather than the salt tablets? Is it more efficient? Oh. Problem with the network. So Andy, is it more or less efficient to um, yeah get get your electrolytes via salt tablets or by your hydration strategy? What gets into the body better or quicker? I think very potentially marginally you get it into the system quicker if it's already diluted into a drink. So, and and the, the good thing about having an electrolyte mixed into your drink is that you can't. Get, go too far wrong with the dosage mm-hmm. so if you put way too much electrolytes into a drink it will taste so bad that you won't be able to, you won't be able to stomach it so you won't put it in your body yeah. um, or it won't get too far the, the, the only danger is salt tablets or, or, or capsules are a good method for for getting a high dose of salts in. you just have to be careful you get a sufficient amount of water or other fluids in with them and obviously it's relatively easy to, to OD on them if you just pop too many and then you won't realize that until you start to feel a bit sick mm. and and to be fair the worst thing that will probably happen is you might be a bit sick or you might have a bit of diarrhea and then you should be back on track but obviously that's that's got the potential to derail a race so you just have to use them with it a bit more cautiously the time on salt tablets are really advantageous is if you're in an event where 
you you just want to stop very briefly and pick up water you can kind of carry them they're small and light you can pop them in your mouth as you approach the aid station wash them down with a couple of cups of water and crack on and you're not going to waste a lot of time mm. so i think in, in events where people are moving a bit faster they they can have an advantage i said i used to carry a little packet of them in my shorts in an iron man and just grab a grab a cup of water on the go from an aid station and keep cracking on yeah. but if you're doing a hundred mile away you're going to stop at stop at a stations for four or five minutes at a time you can probably stop and mix your own drinks and and then you really you know have what you really want yeah it's good hey um what do you what do you think's more common in endurance events overheating or dehydration uh almost certainly overheating i would say certainly in shorter events anyway um because there's a weird it's a bit of a weird one with overheating you're more you're more likely to overheat in the faster events. So I'd have to look back at the literature that I've read on it, but I'm pretty sure that most of the kind of heat stroke type issues that occur actually are more likely to occur in like distances less than a half marathon when fit when fit people are running really, really hard because their metabolic heat production is so high. Obviously it happens a lot in heat and humidity. When you get up to marathon and ultra distance, most people are running that little bit slower so actually although they, they get hot and they feel hot they very often don't get heat stroke type issues so much mm-hmm. because they they basically aren't producing as much metabolic heat and i would say with with the availability of drinks in events these days and, and all the hydration carrying systems and stuff it's unusual for people it's very unusual for people to get significantly dehydrated unless they're not listening to their body so one of the typical sort of hydration mantras is to drink early and often so what happens if you get caught up in the race and miss the drinking early bit so can you catch up or are you sort of doomed from the start i think honestly you are yeah it's an uphill battle because the harder that you start to exercise the hotter it is especially the less blood flow you get into your stomach and your gut the, the less you're going to be able to absorb so unless you slow your pace to drink, you're probably going to be a bit further behind. Mm. So you can do your best to catch up, but you are putting yourself on the back foot by doing that. Um, so that's so a reasonable sort of mantra then? tricky. I think so. For long, for certainly for long events, I would say people would, would want to drink. In shorter events, and, and I would call a shorter event anything less than about 90 minutes, you can get away with pretty minimal drinking, I think, even in the heat. If you... If, if you're starting properly hydrated and starting well hydrated. Hmm. And what about... Um, the, 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 the count, sorry, sorry the thing I was going to say is the counterpoint, the counterpoint to that would be in, if you are doing something really long, like a 100 miler or whatever, I reckon there's a, a higher proportion of people that actually overdo the calories and the fluids because they're moving so slowly, their requirement is lower and counterintuitively they've got more time to stop and eat and drink and stuff and they're very sometimes get a bit concerned about making sure they get enough in and they overdo it so that's where we're kind of working out what is a, a reasonable level of consumption for you per hour and not and not going too far over it is also a good strategy and so the uh the incidence of things like hyponatremia and sausage fingers etc are more prevalent in those slower moving individuals in ultra marathons definitely there's been documented evidence to say that you know you're basically more at risk of hyponatremia if you're a smaller person if you're moving more slowly 
Is is sausage fingers a scientific term? <laughs> it's one I've heard before. I don't know if it's in the you know in the scientific lexicon, but it's definitely one that ultra runners talk about all the time. Have you ever had sausage fingers, Wolf? No, I've had a sausage tongue. <laughs> that sounds a little bit different. Yeah, I've had sausage fingers heaps of times before I yeah learn how to do it right, I guess. Yeah, and no more sausage fingers. There you go. Magic. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're talking about uh, you're talking about how your body sort of balances out prior to a race. For those people that have a bit of a, a caffeine addiction and and like banging down quite a few coffees every day leading up to a, a marathon or a, an, a, an endurance and event would you recommend that they cut down on how much caffeine they have so they're not dehydrating so i used to do that when i was racing seriously i would kind of almost um, cut out the caffeine about 10 days out from an event and then reintroduce it a day or so before and I used to think, I used to believe that would give me a significant performance boost. What it certainly did was make me feel like crap for a few days and then I'd feel better again once I started drinking coffee. So I guess there was maybe a psychological advantage. But all the research tends to indicate that, you know, if you're, as long as you don't change your caffeine habits in the run-up to a race and you're, you know, walking around normally hydrated most of the time, then it's not something to worry about because your your system and your routines are probably balancing themselves out. Mm. What I wouldn't encourage people to do is dramatically change their caffeine habits one way or the other in the build-up to an event because then you're rolling the dice as to seeing how your body reacts. I personally find that I'm sort of with if i drink two or maybe three coffees a day then i'm usually pretty good from a hydration perspective if it goes beyond that then i start to find that i'll i'll start to spiral down a bit with with my hydration and, and how did you find your relationship spiral downwards in that 10 day period before a race with no coffee andy at first mainly the negative consequence before then was nothing to do with fluid balance it would just be that i would actually get like mild headaches and feel feel lousy in the in the mornings because you do get you do get used to that that caffeine hit you know that, that gets you going i could i couldn't go near a coffee shop and smell the stuff you know it was it was awful but uh, that was part of it i think for me was was the psychological readiness getting ready for the race and and i don't know suffering a little bit in anticipation of what it was going to be like and getting your head around the fact that this was this was a sacrifice to that you would make to succeed i actually look back at it now and think it was probably relatively pointless but you know you live and learn i find if i abstain in other ways for 10 days before a race that's quite successful as well what about you <laughs> that's just part of life for me <laughs> <laughs> ebbs and flows. Let's just call it ebbs and flows. Uh, funny. Hey, uh, we we haven't spoken we haven't spoken about cramping much. Um, so, like a lot of people associate, uh, you know, low sodium levels or dehydration with cramping. But is there more science to support muscle fatigue? Would you say? I'd say that there's 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 a patchwork of science to support both arguments and no solid consensus so what you've got there is a classic like two two different arguments when actually we're looking in the wrong place there i think there's i think there's 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 a strong rationale and there's certainly a massive amount of you know decades of anecdotal evidence 
to support the the fact that when you know some people get very electrolyte depleted they they suffer more muscle cramps and that that extends outside of sport as well so when you look at kidney dialysis patients who who when the doctors are dialing in their their dialysis machines to reabsorb different levels of sodium, if they get them too low on the sodium, quite often they know because the, the people get muscle cramps in their legs, mm. um, and, and in fact all over their bodies sometimes. Um, you get that, all the doctors that I speak to who deal with hyponatremia in hospitals cite muscle cramping as a side effect of, or one of the, the, the things that they look for when, when people are becoming hyponatremic, it's a bit of a red flag to them. So... And, and that's that's uh, plus you've got all of the, the sort of sports related stories of, of people you know cramping when they get low on salt with the neuromuscular theories there's a, a lot of validity in those as well because clearly there's a lot of occasions when people get cramps and it's got nothing it's, there's no plausible way it could be to do with electrolyte depletion because it happens in cold conditions or it happens very early in events before they've done any sweating and i think what we're dealing with is no, like different flavors of muscle cramp, really. And there's no one universal reason or mechanism that anyone's identified yet that causes it. But we know that some people respond really well to, to taking more salt and fluid, and that seems to solve their cramps. Whereas for a few people, it doesn't, and they have to go looking elsewhere. Maybe it's sports massage and acupuncture and therapy and strengthening muscles to resist fatigue, that sort of stuff that helps. Do you, do you think, Andy, that rather than being two opposing camps there, that they just intermingle with each other to, to cause that, that outcome of the cramp, the neuromuscular along with the depletion? I think they definitely can, and that's that's definitely the case that you start to get to in, in longer events when you're hitting fatigue and um, dehydration or electrolyte depletion, and you're also dealing with, um, you know, muscles that are breaking down glycogen depletion unaccustomed activity all that sort of stuff all comes together and you don't it's kind of three main groups of people when it comes to cramping have you got have you lost me we just lost the three main groups of people when it comes to cramping there Hopefully it's not you, me, and Wolf. Should I, should I just start that bit again? Yeah. Yeah. Who, who, who are those three main weak people? So you've got. So you've got. I think people that don't cramp at all, and because I meet athletes all the time, we we survey them, we talk to them about cramping, and there's a, there's a subgroup of people that that just say, I never, I don't even, they don't even understand really what a muscle cramp is. They've never had it. They've seen other people having them. They've got no idea. I hate those people, um, Andy. Maybe they just don't work. Maybe they just don't work hard enough, though. <laughs> that, that could be that could be the problem. Um, then I would say you've got a big group of people in the middle who would say that they very occasionally get muscle cramps, but it's kind of fleeting. It's they, they they understand it, but it's not a persistent problem. And then you've got a small subgroup at the top of people who are persistent crampers who get cramp often and pretty badly. And I was definitely in that group. But interestingly, and I'm still. I would say more cramp-prone than most of the people. But I can do long endurance events now without cramping because I've got on top of my salt and fluid balance. And it was back when I was getting that so messed up that my cramping would be terrible. And it would it caused me to drop out of or, or finish badly in a lot of races. And I think, you know, it's, it's a case of, I don't know, figuring out what the triggers are for different people. For me, it was definitely 
over overhydration, electrolyte depletion, and possibly a little bit of overreaching in events as well. You know, pushing yourself a bit too hard too early. That was that was a big cause of the cramps. Now I think as I'm older, I've got a better handle on pacing, and I certainly know a lot better what to do with my fueling and hydration. And it's been a long time since I've had a debilitating cramp, even in a very long race. I raced in. I did a race in Sweden at the back end of last year, which was nine hours long. And you know, I got, although I got a few twinges of cramp in the last hour, it didn't, it didn't ever pull me up. Whereas in the past, I doubt I'd have got through an event like that without problems. And, and so, Andy, how can someone find out exactly how much sweat they're losing in their fluid to get that balance right? You can an easy way to to measure your sweat rate is just to weigh yourself before and after some training sessions. And if you don't drink anything in those sessions, or you measure what you drank and then feed that into the equation, you can you can basically assume that most of that weight loss that you've experienced is fluid loss, and that gives you a sweat rate. I can send you guys a a blog with a spreadsheet on there that people can download for free that they can just plug their numbers into, and it explains in great detail how to go through the process but it's an easy way to measure your sweat rate and then you can start to sort of figure out okay my average sweat rate is you know i don't know a liter an hour 1.2 liters an hour or whatever and then compare that to some tables of what's what's normal and what's high and low and you soon get a handle on whether you're like a heavy sweater or not Mm. the the more difficult one is understanding how much salt you lose and you know good things to observe on that are do you see lots of salt stains on your face? Do you get muscle cramps? Are you do you um, crave salt after long training sessions? We we've got a little questionnaire on our website. It's called it's called a free online sweat test where people can answer those questions and then it'll point you in the direction of whether you're sort of lose likely to be losing a low, a medium, or a high amount of salt in your sweat and, and gives you some pointers on which way you should be looking for your for your hydration plan. Fantastic. You've, um, I believe you've also created a course, Andy, so if people wanted to study or learn a bit more about um, the science of hydration, they could do that. Do you want to, do you want to tell the, the listeners a bit about that? Yeah, that's on, that's on the Training Peaks platform, in which I don't know, do you guys use Training Peaks at all? I have in the past, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. used it in the past. Yeah, it's like a, a lot of coaches use it. It's a great online training diary tool, but they also have all these great educational university courses and they asked us to do one on, on the science of endurance hydration. So that's on there and we can link to that in the in the show notes and give people a, a discount code to, to download the course if they want to go through it. It's quite in-depth. It's got a few modules um, quizzes along the way to make sure you've been paying attention, and then you know it gives you a pretty, pretty good all-round um, background on on your hydration. All right, that sounds good. Um, have you got anything else? I got heaps of questions, mate. So I got a question from our partners at Base Camp Altitude, actually. So, what are the yeah. specific hydration considerations of training or competing at altitude, Andy? I think the main one is that when you travel to altitude, especially for the first few days, you're prone to losing more body water generally, especially through your through your respiration because you breathe you breathe a lot faster. The air's generally a lot drier, so you lose a lot more fluid through that route. So what the general recommendation is usually is to take uh, you know take a little bit of extra fluid on in the first few days to help counterbalance that. Yeah. 
Um, other than that, once you adapt, you tend to fall into a pretty normal routine. Sometimes, you, if, if it's hot and dry up there, you might just need to drink more generally anyway. Hmm. But that's the case anywhere that's hot and dry, not specifically just to altitude. But it's those, I think the first few days of adaptation, a little bit more drinking. And I think other people have said it, it can blunt your, the altitude can blunt your thirst a little bit as well. Yep. So maybe you have to be a bit more conscious about, about drinking. So don't drink to um, thirst and, and like Timmy Noakes diligent. is. Not quite so much. I think you you probably have a you know try and be a bit more diligent. And and I would you know with with most athletes when they go any on any training camp, I advise them to monitor their body weight mm-hmm. because they're training harder. You know, losing although you might be training hard and thinking that losing body weight is good. If you're seeing a stepwise loss in body weight over a number of days when you start a training camp, it can just be a sign that you're under hydrating and under fueling, yep. and that'll catch you out ten days in. Mm. So I think very very good advice to people going to altitude is to do that on a daily basis so just a little bit more to start off with and then see how you go yeah and your body sort of tends to level out then because i think you adapt you you adapt your routines and you adapt your physiology a little bit so that it becomes less of an issue that's great thank you what mate what's your take on the anti-inflammatories in endurance sport topic so how dangerous is this practice in reality in your mind well, it's a good question. I used to, I took some, I remember having a particular, I had a persistent knee injury and I wasn't, this was going back 15 plus years ago, it ended up in me having to have surgery on it and I was not um, shy with taking some anti-inflammatories in, in races around that time because I sort of perceived it helped get me through. But I think I haven't, I haven't looked at the evidence in a, in a great deal of detail, but my perception of what I've read is that actually that's a really bad idea mm. and that it would not be something we'd advise athletes to do nowadays. I, I also know that from a hyponatremia point of view, risk point of view, um, it's, it's often cited as um, an exacerbating factor in some cases is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use mm. is often been linked with increased fluid retention and therefore problems you know associated with hyponatremia so i think that basically the, the message is is largely nowadays you know if you if you're in a bad enough way that you need painkillers as well you're doing some doing a race you should probably shouldn't be doing it yeah so call it a day fair enough fair enough uh, apart from the sodium there's obviously other electrolytes there so what's the importance of magnesium supplementation is it necessary or are we just playing a dangerous game with its laxative effect I think it's the only time I'm aware that magnesium supplementation is necessary is if you are, if you're basically magnesium deficient in your diet or you're not absorbing it very well. So you're not going to sweat. Magnesium in sweat is single digit milligrams per litre. So you're not going to sweat out a sufficient amount to become deficient in magnesium. Mm -hmm. Most sports drinks do have some magnesium in and they, you know, that's, that's kind of, I guess there because it's there in sweat, but at the same time, I don't think you know supplementation is necessary from a sweat loss point of view. There may be other medical reasons why you'd want to take it, but you'd want to make sure you've spoken to your doctor and had blood tests and things to check your magnesium levels before you start just popping supplements for no reason. So basically a marketing campaign from the Gatorade Institute again. I think largely a lot of a lot of a lot of hype behind a lot of supplements. Basically, there's very few supplements that have any strong efficacy behind them, but a lot of them have a very strong marketing yeah. angle. Agreed. 
Agreed. I've got, I got another listener question from our prolific judge. So I understand that alcohol has a diuretic effect, but I see that there remains a lot of fluid in beer. Is there a prescribed number of beers I can partake in while remaining properly hydrated? Uh, I think the evidence is pretty strong towards like one or two. <laughs> and then beyond that, beyond that, it's a net, it's a net negative. We got it so, really, we got yeah. it really wrong on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do have to apologise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a good answer though. Two, two sounds about right. Yeah. They actually, there was a study that showed there was a study that a few years ago that showed actually that I think a pint of low alcohol beer rehydrated someone better than a pint of water on its own. Fantastic. I'd have to look that one up. But I think it was because the alcohol and the calories in it slow the transit time through the gut and actually enable better absorption, you know, fats, um, slower absorption and more of a net retention in fluid. So what they did was they measured how much they drank and then how much they peed in a time afterwards. And, and actually, I think it was an, a net, it was, it was slightly better for a pint of low alcohol beer than it was for a, a pint of water. So the take-home so message... Like that, that. Is beer is better than water at hydrating you? Just about, yeah. You could probably <laughs> you could probably create a marketing campaign around that. What's well, funny you should say it because we do have a beer sponsor. Oh, who's that? It's Sydney Brewery. Funny you should ask. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> we're sampling the goods as. We, did you hear the the can crack before? I did wonder. I know it's like getting late in the evening for you guys, so I'll let you off. Thanks, yeah. mate. Yeah. I've got I've got one more question. <laughs> so, is it necessary for every single person in their active wear taking a gentle stroll to the cafe to carry a water bottle with them? Are we really that close to the perils of dehydration at all times? No. Good. <laughs> Do you want to think about it? <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. No, I'm sure you can get a drink when you get to the cafe or the gym and you'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. We're just taking the piss out of the active, active wear people. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Someone needs to. Awesome. All right. Well, um, it's, been, it's been awesome chatting to you. Where, where can people find your website and are you on Insta as well? We are. Um, precisionhydration.com. And we've got a good blog on there, which, as I say, I'll send you some links to. If anyone's got any specific questions, email us at hello at precisionhydration.com. And we, we love to hear from people. I've got a gang in the office working with me, and we answer all of our all the emails that come in. I think our average response time around the world at the moment is about 12 hours. So if someone's got a hydration or nutrition question, just send that in. On Instagram, we're at Precision Hydration. They can DM us on that as well or find us on Facebook and DM us through there. That's a great resource. Thanks, Andy. Fantastic. Cool. All Thank right. you for the invite, gents. I have to come come for a run with you next time I'm in Sydney, maybe. Yeah, have Absolutely. you got plans to come over again? Definitely, yeah. Love it down there. We're doing a, we're doing a bit more... Um, We've been a bit more active in in Australia in the in the coming months. Hopefully, we're interested in coming out for the maybe looking at coming out for the Noosa Triathlon in October. Um, um but also there'll be other stuff going on as well. So yeah, it'd be be great to come and have a grab a beer with you or go for a run. Bit of both, mate. Both. It's a balance. 
exactly, yeah. <laughs> Good on you, mate. All right, thanks for your time, and I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll be in touch shortly. Great stuff. Have a great evening, fellas. Cheers, Andy. Andy.